I know I don't usually preach on just one verse. I know you're very excited. You're like, wow, this should be quick. <laughs> oh, hold on. There's a lot here. <laughs> As we, before we come to our text this morning, I was thinking of hope. And a, a particular story came to mind, but I couldn't remember all the details, so I had to look it up. But you might remember, for some of those who are uh, of uh, older generation like myself, but in June of 1981, a millionaire by the name of Eugene Long, son of Jewish immigrants from Russia and Hungary, was invited to deliver the commencement address for, to 61 sixth graders at Public School 121 on East 103rd Street in Harlem, New York. This is a school that he had gone to as a young boy. He said about the experience, quote, I looked out at the audience of almost entirely African-American and Hispanic students, wondering what to say to them. He had intended to tell them, their families and their teachers, that he had attended PS 121 more than a half century earlier, and that he had worked very hard and made a lot of money, and if they worked hard, maybe they could be successful too. But he said, it dawned on me that the commencement banalities I planned were completely irrelevant. So I began by telling them that one of my most memorable experiences was hearing Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and that everyone must have a dream, have hope. Then I decided to tell them I'd give a scholarship to every member of the class admitted to a four-year college. There was stunned silence, a few audible gasps, and then students, parents, and teachers cheered and mobbed him. He told them that he would earmark $2,000 for each of them toward college tuition and that he would add more money each year as they stayed in school. At that moment, the lives of those students changed. For the first time, they had a hope beyond themselves. Said one student, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. Mr. Lang soon realized that just money wasn't enough, and so he adopted the class and walked these students through the next six years. That promise turned into the I Have a Dream Foundation, which not only helped those kids, but has grown to help 16,000 students as of Mr. Long's death in 2017. At least half of the original 61 sixth graders who called themselves dreamers enrolled in public and private colleges. Those who decided to pass up on college, Mr. Lang often found them employment. Hope is a powerful thing. Many of those students had no hope of attending college before that day in 1981. But because of a promise made by someone who could keep that promise, their lives were changed forever. This morning, we come to our text in the midst of a seemingly hopeless situation. the worst situation. A promise is made. A promise made by the only one who could keep such a promise. A promise that brought hope then 
and continues to offer hope today and for the life to come. Before we read Genesis 3, 15, just a quick contextual comment. We come to Genesis 3, 15, having seen that God in Genesis 1 and 2 is the creator of all things and that all things that he created was very good in the culmination of creating man and woman. He gave these two, Adam and Eve, commands, commands to be fruitful and multiply, commands to have dominion over the earth, to care for the earth, to develop it, to grow it, to use the resources that he had made. But he said, do not eat of one tree. Everything else, all the plants, all the trees, everything is for you to consume and to use. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve fall into sin by disobeying God's command not to eat. And so we find in Genesis 3.15, the Lord God explaining what will happen. He curses the serpent who represents Satan or who Satan had embodied. He will curse the woman. He will curse the man. He will curse the ground. But in the midst of these curses, there's hope and a promise. Let's read Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would, this morning as we come to your very word, living and active, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we begin our Advent series titled Hope Rises from Unexpected Places. We'll be taking a look at different passages from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation over the next four weeks, seeing how the God of hope brings hope when hope seems lost. We've just finished 1 Peter, where we were reminded that we are exiles living in a strange land, awaiting our true country, our true kingdom. We look around the world and we see wars and rumors of wars. We live in a world affected by sin, a world similar to the world that our first parents found themselves in on that day when sin entered the world. In our passage, things look pretty bleak. 
depending on what glasses you're wearing, what experience you're in, what circumstances in our world, things can look pretty bleak. But even the bleakness of our text, think about it. Adam and Eve have just gone from living in a world that is very good. It's perfection. They have walked in the garden with God himself. They have spent time in personal, connected relationship with the one who created them in perfect harmony with one another and with him. And that is God. Even in the bleakness of our text, in the bleakness of our world, we see in our text a promise. The main point of our text this morning is because the promise is Jesus, hope has been revealed. Because the promise is Jesus, hope has been revealed. First, we're going to look at how do we know the promise is Jesus, and then next, how does this promise give us hope? First, how do we know the promise is Jesus? Well, Genesis 3.15, this isn't how we know, but this is how we've gotten there, has come to be called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because it was the original proclamation of the promise of God's plan for the world. It gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, a glimpse of the person and mission of the one who is going to be the central figure in the unfolding drama of the redemption of the world. The offspring or seed actually in the the Hebrew mentioned in this verse becomes the root of the tree, so to speak, of the Old Testament promise of the Messiah that will grow up throughout the revelation that God gives to his people. So if this is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, this seed promise, who is this seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is the one who will attack and be victorious over the serpent, the evil one. This Hebrew term zarah or seed can be either plural or singular. And throughout the Old Testament, the reference to the seed is always in relation to the one, or most often the relationship to the one who will come, the the singular as a descendant in the line. We also see throughout the Old Testament, which is quite interesting that the reference to seed is most often in relation to the man. Except here. The offspring, the seed is, God specifically says that it's the woman. Maybe giving us even more of a hint of the hope to come. Emmanuel, God in the flesh, born of a woman, born of the seed of a woman by the power of God. 
We see this developing as the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, written in the third century BC, refers back to this antecedent seed, which in Greek is grammatically neuter. The translators use the masculine pronoun. Commentators point out that this is quite startling because the Greek antecedent requires a neuter pronoun. The Septuagint translators break the rules of Greek grammar and they translate it as a person, as a masculine person who would come. It becomes evident that the translators of the Septuagint intentionally translated the Hebrew in such a way that Genesis 3.15 stands as the first pronouncement of the anticipation of the Messiah to come in the Old Testament. Genesis offers clear contextual allusions that Abraham's promise that comes later in the, in the book is fundamentally in relation to this promise in 3.15 that God offers Abraham the hope of a coming, quote, seed who will bring the world back to its state of Genesis 1 and 2. And so we see throughout the Old Testament that this is beginning to grow. And we see that those who, uh, even as early as the third century BC, often before that, we believe, has start to understand that this promise is not just some general promise that humanity will someday overcome evil. But this promise is a specific way in which God will fulfill the need for evil to be overcome. A specific person to put our hope in. The hope offered to Adam and Eve can be summarized in God's promise to accomplish three tasks. Destroy evil, restore creation, and allow God to once again dwell with his people. These are the very same things that God promises to Abraham. He summarized the same three tasks. He promised Abraham that he would destroy evil. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. That he would restore creation by bringing blessing to all nations, Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, 18. And that God that would allow God to dwell with his people, dwelling with them forever, Genesis 17, 8. This same hope offered to Adam and Eve was the same hope offered to Abraham, and this is the same hope Paul continually says in the New Testament is offered to us. Because we are sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. And so this promise grows and grows and grows throughout Scripture to be clearly shown in Jesus Christ. So how does this promise give us hope? Genesis 3.15, as this first promise of redemption after the fall of humanity, is that God would send a seed a son who would crush the serpent's head. And as we enter this time of, of Advent longing, it's a time where we eagerly, eagerly anticipate 
celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ and his birth, but we also wait with expectation just as eagerly as those in the Old Testament who hoped for the one who fulfilled this promise. We, knowing who fulfilled that promise, now eagerly wait for his return. You see, this promise was not merely about Jesus' first coming, though certainly was. But this promise also includes in it his second coming, where he would make all things new and right. Right? In the three tasks that I mentioned earlier, destroying evil, restoring creation, allowing God to dwell with his people, God promises something great. He promises the future. Restoration of creation, a renewal of all things. Ultimately, in Genesis 3.15, God promises to bring the world back to the way it was. All very good. And while nowhere in our passage and even throughout the, New, the Old Testament is the term Messiah found, it is evident that Adam and Eve are giving clear anticipatory, anticipatory and future hope, that eschatological hope of what is to come. And that's important because as Peter reminded us we can endure the trials and suffering that we will experience in this life because of the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of the life to come, the hope of our dwelling place with Jesus in his kingdom. And this is what Advent is primarily about, hope for the hopeless, hope for the discontent, hope for those who know all too well that the world and their lives are not the way it's supposed to be. Hope for those who have felt the ramifications of the curse. As far as the curse is found, he is coming again to make his blessings flow, finally and fully conquering Satan and making all things new. You see, we often get caught up in the sentimentality, sentimentality of Christmas. Right? We get caught up in this whole thing of, you know, of chestnuts roasting on an open fire and, you know, drinking hot cocoa and having those things that just make us feel good and, and comfortable and nice. And none of that is wrong or bad, but that is not what the Advent season and the Christmas season is really about. And we get so caught up in that that we believe that that is what makes the season bright. But in reality, the season of Advent and even the season of Christmas in the church is a reminder to us that we are without hope. That things are not the way they are supposed to be. That we await the coming of the one who came and promised he will come again to make it all right. 
That is the hope of Advent. That is the hope of Christmas. That is what makes it merry and bright. I'll conclude by showing a piece of artwork. I don't often show anything on the screens during my sermon, but several years ago, I saw this drawing for the first time. It's originally done in crayon and pencil. (laughs) Think about that. Two of the most (laughs) humble, (laughs) artistic (laughs) tools that an artist could use. A nun by the name of Grace Remington with the Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey drew it. It's titled, Mary Consoles Eve. And while it may not be 100% theologically accurate, I give you that, it does depict something incredibly powerful, the hope of Jesus. These two women, one who received the hope of the promise from her seed and the woman who received the fulfillment of that promise from her seed, the sense of complete and total despair being consoled with the hope of Jesus. The one who experienced in its fullness the weight of sin, right? Eve, Adam and Eve experienced the fullness of the weight of sin like none of us have ever experienced. They knew what it was like to live in the perfection of God's good, very good creation. And now, feel the weight of total despair, of sin entering the world and their lives. The one who experienced in its fullness the weight of sin like no one until the one who is her consolation, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The one who knew the perfection of being the triune God, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living in the perfect relationship of the Trinity, experiencing the full weight of sin and death upon the cross. The one who will experience the same weight of sin cares for her. cares for the one who threw this world into the peril of sin. He cares for her and he cares for all who come to him through the cross. Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of God's plan of salvation. 
And the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem represents the culmination of that plan. God was faithful to that promise, and we find hope in the knowledge that God is faithful always to his promises. And just as he fulfilled the promise of a son in Genesis 15 through the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, he promises to come again. God's ancient promise as the source of our hope and redemption of Jesus is the same promise that will come to its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus comes again in glory. Because the promise is Jesus, hope has been revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The hope revealed to us in him. Lord, I pray that as we begin this season of Advent, Lord, that we would know your hope, find our hope in you and you alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.